Welcome to Out of the Blank. Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Mr. Sperling, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Uh, sure. Uh, my name is Phil Swirling. I um, was previously a university professor over 15 years, and before that, uh, a Unitarian minister for 20 years. And now I've been happily retired for five years and living in Northern California. And I'm certainly interested in your in your topic uh, about the CIA on campus because I I lived through uh, that period a period of um, struggle around that subject on my on my own campus in Texas. So when did do you know the history of it? Like, uh, what was your experience or your interaction with the CIA on campus at your University of Texas? Well, those are uh, the CIA story is a very large story. The CIA on campus has a long history, and my involvement was over on a single campus over a short period of time. But I wanted to recommend to your viewers one book uh, covering subjects that I'm not uh, going to cover. It's uh, called Legacy of Ashes by Tim Weiner. It's a history of the CIA, uh, and he won a Pulitzer Prize for this. And uh, it's a really devastating critique of the CIA over its history from shortly after World War II uh, to the debacle of a 9-11 uh, terrorist attack, uh, one of the most devastating attacks on, on the United States, which was completely uh, ignored and uh, and um, and turned into a really a terrible uh, intelligence failure for the entire uh, intelligence community, but including certainly the CIA. And and the book is is fascinating for its history um, and, and serves as a background to what the CIA is doing today. In my case, it was just uh, just uh, serving uh, as a uh, professor at the University of Texas. Uh, Pan American. It was then called today as the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley. It's one of the eight uh, UT campuses in the state of Texas. Um, and I had been there uh, for several years. I was teaching in what was then the English department. Later, we became our own department of creative writing. Uh, and I soon became the director of that program. But I, I I found that there were things going on campus that were uh, puzzling and and eventually, as I learned more, horrifying. Uh, and what I discovered is that following 9-11 um, and that uh, striking intelligence failure on the part of the CIA, what's called the intelligence community, and this is 16 different intelligence organizations in the United States, and the best known are probably the CIA and the NSA. But even, even the Coast Guard has its intelligence division, as does the Navy and the Army. Uh, and these uh, are all now, since 9-11, under the 
under the Director of National Intelligence. And following the attacks, uh, under pressure from Congress, uh, the CIA uh, and these other intelligence organizations were pushed to hire what uh, Congresswoman Jane Harmon of California called officers who look like the terrorists. That is, uh, brown uh, and Asian and black people who had formerly made up the tiniest minority of CIA case agents. There had just as America had in so many ways been segregated, so had the intelligence agencies. Uh, we know, for example, the military was completely segregated until after World War II. Uh, and as the OSS transformed into the CIA after World War II, uh, they did their recruiting on the, uh, on the uh, Ivy League campuses of the Northeast. And so uh, the CIA was almost entirely white and male. And so the push after 9-11 was to reach out and bring in people that, of course, this came under the mantle of diversity, which usually is a very positive thing in other organizations, but with the nefarious history of the CIA, it took on a very malignant cast. And the campus uh, on which I taught in the Rio Grande Valley, just, uh, just north of the border with Mexico, was 85% Mexican-American students. And it was a particularly, uh, as the dean told me, uh, a vulnerable uh, population in the sense that 38% uh, of the entire population of the Rio Grande Valley lives below the poverty line, uh, all, 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 often in uh, communities that um, are without uh, electricity or running water. And the students we attracted to the university were often the first in their families to, um, to attend college. And what I learned, uh, because one of the programs I became most involved in and really found to be so beneficial for the students was study abroad. And we would take students to study in Europe for the summer. And I found that unlike the population I had dealt with at a private college in the Northeast, these students had rarely been outside the state of Texas, uh, sometimes had never been outside the Rio Grande Valley, had never been on an airplane. Uh, and so the study abroad experience was particularly valuable for them to increase their sense, not only the world around them, but their place within that world. And what, But what I saw was that the CIA was also on this campus. Uh, and their main goal was recruitment of students. And study abroad, as I'll talk about, was one of the methods that they, they used. But to, to <clears throat> attract sufficient operatives, the CIA needs at least 10,000 new applicants every year. And so they are recruiting. To recruit uh, applicants who do not look like uh, the current population of the CIA, they have targeted historically black universities, uh, women's colleges, and uh, Hispanic serving universities. And they have, as, as I, I, undoubtedly Vern Lyon, 
who has already appeared on your program, he and I, well, I helped him write his story of being a student uh, inductee to the CIA in the book Eyes on Havana. Uh, as he undoubtedly told you, um, students are lured into service uh, under all kinds of false claims and false pretenses, and we saw that happening on our campus. The CIA, people have to remember, the CIA budget <clears throat> is secret. Uh, who the members of the CIA are is secret. Uh, this is a realm of government uh, that is entirely separated from uh, the citizens whose uh, tax money is, uh, is, un is, is paying for it. And so what they do is also secretive. And they came up with a very, a very, um, what can we call it, a very benign seeming outreach to these universities, to people of color. Uh, it was called uh, Academic Centers of Excellence. And in return for millions of dollars, in the case of the University of Texas Pan American, it was about $5 million, uh, the CIA demanded certain things in return. Uh, they had, for example, uh, their own room in the library. Now, every, the, the library is kind of the crown jewel of any university. This is where students not only go to study, but where the where knowledge is open to them through the books. Well, they're and, alone. Excuse me. They're alone. Um, and and in each library where these grants were made, the CIA had their own reading room. Everything in that room was chosen by the CIA. In other words, every every other place in the library, it was professional librarians who were choosing the reading material. In that room, the CIA chose the reading material. And people and and they got a plaque on the door, and it was supposed to be kind of a uh, kind of an entree, kind of a, almost like a little club that if you were in the know, you could be part of this. They also required the creation of uh, interdisciplinary majors on campus. Now the CIA, I mean, they're smart people, but very few of them have PhDs. Very few of them are trained in education, and yet they're manipulate, manipulating uh, college courses to create a new interdisciplinary major. So the student who would take some government courses and some criminal justice courses could get a uh, a uh, certificate uh, in a in a in an academic uh, study prepared by the CIA that would then make them um, attractive to their future employers. Now, in many cases, and we never proved this at UTPA, but in many cases, professors are former CIA case officers. Of course, they they can't be identified as such so that they would be placed in the university to teach these courses. And you can only imagine the political ideology from which they taught. I wanna, I'm sure your, your viewers understand this, but the university, the university is supposed to be about kind of the, the, un, the unfettered search for truth. It's about research. It's about learning. It's, uh, I know there's a lot of this baloney now in the press about, you know, how left-wing professors are um, indoctrinating students. But really, 
the idea is, and this is what I saw by and large, is the professors are much more interested in their students feeling free to pursue knowledge wherever they find it. And indoctrination was not on the agenda. But to have a secret program within the university, and often these programs would be known only to the president and perhaps the vice president. Uh, they would be the only ones who would know who the case officers on campus were. Uh, this is entirely antithetical to the ideal of a university. And, and this is the situation we face. And, and, and this program was, the goal was recruitment. They would also have a budget to attract speakers. Uh, often not identified as CIA case officers. And they would parcel out rewards to certain professors for their cooperation. In other words, they could allow a professor to have a security clearance that would allow them to pursue their research at a higher level. Those professors who were not cooperating with the CIA would be denied a security clearance. In the university, promotion and tenure are dependent upon research and publishing. And so anything that aids promotion, uh, that aids research and publication, and in some cases the CIA would subsidize publications that they approved of, would lead to academic rewards in terms of promotion and tenure. So there were a lot of inducements for professors to cooperate with the CIA. In some cases, in some universities, I, I, we didn't see this at, at my, where I serve, um, the, the professor would actually turn over to higher ups in the CIA a list of students who seemed to be doing particularly well, who seemed to be uh, pos potential recruits, and the CIA would then contact them directly. And as you heard from uh, Vern Lyon, again, in, uh, in Eyes on Havana, um, he was rewarded for spying on his fellow students, for spying on his teachers. Uh, he received cash payments and a deferment so he didn't have to serve in Vietnam. And, uh, and he would provide his CIA handlers with lists of students to keep an eye on and professors to keep an eye on. This was part of a national program that involved tens of thousands of files on, on professors and students, none of whom were ever uh, proven guilty of doing anything other than disagreeing with government policy, which so far has not been a crime. So that's a long answer to your question. I uh, spoke with Daniel Golden about his book, Spy Schools, and he kind of briefly talked about the whole, I guess, relationship between campuses and, you know, the in intelligence agencies. But nobody ever went to the specifics of like a designed room or a reading room that was kind of so it's basically I wouldn't say it's kind of grooming in a sense, these kids to be intelligence asset i mean i have a very very strong opinion on i don't think institutions should be letting intelligence agencies use these kids lives and kind of point their career path to be used in covert ops or intelligence services at all i mean i get if they're hurting for people but at the same time it's like that's not you're you're changing someone's life and we know from Vern's story i mean 
they were had leverage over them. They weren't helping him. They were just using him. And constantly when he thought he was going to, you know, the next day he was going to have this whole case situation go away. No, it didn't. It stayed on over his head. And, you know, we spent years and he even got locked up for it for a brief amount of time and destroyed his life in a sense. I mean, it makes you cry at the ending of when you hear him talk about it. And this is just one of probably many people that experience the same situations. Well, as, as I said, it can appear very benign. And I mentioned earlier this whole issue of uh, study abroad. And I saw it as a program really to widen the horizons of my students. I took students to, uh, to London, to Florence, Italy, and to uh, Salamanca, Spain. But there were study abroad programs on this campus funded by the CIA. They weren't advertised that way. But these were programs to study abroad in the Middle East. And they were taking students most specifically to Morocco, but also to Egypt. Students were, and, and to make sure that they had lots of students, where our students had to raise money to, to go to attend study abroad programs in Europe. In the Middle Eastern program, the, the, the program was free to the students because it was funded by the CIA. Again, that was not announced. Students were told to keep a log while they were in these countries, to keep notes on what they were seeing and what they were experiencing. At the end of the program, those logs were turned into the professor. Those logs were then passed on to the CIA. Now, I don't, these students weren't trained as agents. And I can't imagine personally that their, their observations were all that valuable. But what I saw from my point of view is if the host countries found out that this was happening, they could treat these students as foreign agents to their legal and physical detriment. And what are they playing off of plausible deniability that that's going to work in a situation like this? That nobody's going to know. I mean, students, you know, I, when we went to Florence, students were always, uh, we were going to museums and they were sitting around uh, sketching the art that they saw. I presume that it looks entirely normal to have a student sitting in a bazaar or uh, sitting in a square and, and taking notes. And those notes may seem entirely benign. I have no idea what the students would see that would make this valuable, but those notes would go home with the students. I presume a professor could just say this is an assignment. Uh, you know, we're just studying this or that. We're studying the economics. And then that would go to the CIA. But it certainly placed students at risk. I mean, that was my greatest concern. I'm just, I mean, what, what does it lead to next? Leads to other students spying on other students and taking notes. And that's dangerous. I mean, you're just having now you're fueling paranoia in a sense as well, too. Well, and why and and why not? Um, you know, it was um, it was Dwight Eisenhower, the president of the United States, who made a very important speech just as he was leaving office in 1960, and he coined the phrase that I think everybody knows: the military-industrial complex. However, that's really not the phrase that he used. I'm just going to consult my notes here. Um, he used the phrase the military-industrial-academic complex. He said, the prospect of domination of the nation's scholars by federal employment, 
project allocations and the power of money is ever present and is gravely to be regarded. Uh, at that point, President Eisenhower knew about the uh, CIA MK Ultra program. We didn't know about it until 1975. But these were experiments on college students. They were given drugs without being told uh, because the CIA was testing the, the use of mind-controlled drugs in interrogation. So he was very aware of the government's interest in academics. And it, and it makes, you know, on some level, it makes sense. Where are you going to find the best and the brightest? Where are you going to find young people who either uh, through financial gain or, or patriotism can be manipulated to do things that otherwise they would not do? I mean, some of these MK Ultra victims or subjects uh, committed suicide. Others questioned their own sanity after these drug trials. Um, it, it was a, a series of very nefarious kinds of activities. MKUltra was, if you read the intelligence senate.gov document, it's like 175 pages. And when they talk about using college institutions on unwitting uh, as people, prisoners, but it goes to prisoners, it goes into so much more. What surprised me more was like the names like Sidney Gottlieb and Julian West that were professors at some of these institutions that were also part of these MK Ultra experimentations where it just goes where I, I it makes me question everything I mean I think you look at school as a place of education you're going to excel your life out there and try and experience something new but then it gets completely divided when you have these government I guess covert I wouldn't call them covert ops but it, projects that are going on that interfere into your life well think of the example we have which is much more contemporary and that was the recruitment of two university psychologists, leaders in their profession, to design what became organized CIA, FBI torture chambers, uh, where they reverse engineered a program which had originally been designed for captured prisoners to resist uh, torture. They turned it around and engineered in uh, stress positions, sleep deprivation, starvation, beatings, these all of which were used against people after 9-11 in black sites in the Middle East and in Eastern Europe, uh, which resulted in the torture of many people who had nothing to do with 9-11 at all. But the connection is, Two university psychologists were paid very well to design this program. They observed the torture sessions. They're now being sued for this. Uh, and, and it was their knowledge, their training, their ability that the government wanted to pursue this program. Who's being sued for this? The two, the two professors. Gottlieb and Joyon West? No. Oh, gosh. I, if you'll give me half a moment there, I'll no, take your time. I had, chapter. I had Stephen Kinzer on my show, talk about Sidney Gottlieb and his book, Poisoner in Chief. This is uh, we have, a, uh, I edited a book uh, called the CIA on campus. And one of the chapters is written by a psychologist. Uh, his name is Stephen Solds. 
And the names. Me and Vern talked about your book a little bit too. You got like, did you get seven people or eight people involved in that book? Let me, before I go, before I lose this, this is the program. It was called SEER, and the psychologists were James Mitchell and Bruce Jessen. Uh, they left the university and started their own consulting company, and they re reverse engineered the SEER program for torture. Uh, the book was was our response to the discovery of what was going on on campus. A number of the uh, oh, I guess we've got what nine? I guess we have eight of us who wrote articles here. Uh, one was the by a librarian on campus who talked about how the government was actually serving secret subpoenas on librarians across the country to find out who had checked out what books, when and where, and how the libraries were in some cases cooperating and in other cases um, resisting those orders. And of course, Vern Lyon was, was one, of the one of the people in this book uh, when we were actually able to find a former student informer and, who became a case officer for the CIA. And it was after he wrote this chapter uh, that he and I cooperate on his book, Eyes on, Eyes on Havana, which told his story in much more uh, detail. So yes, uh, the CIA sees the universities as um, a training ground, a recruitment uh, ground, uh, a place that's vital, as, uh, as uh, President Eisenhower said, for a military-industrial-academic complex uh, supporting America, American uh, intelligence. But, but, and that's fine. I'm not, I'm not saying that, that, that students might not choose to, to serve in the government or they might not choose to serve in the military. My point really is that is this is done under a cloak of secrecy. It's done uh, without the students knowing what they're getting into. And really, we have to ask, you know, how many things, if something has to be done in secret, there's a reason for that. And it may be because it's something we should not be doing. How do you get a university to make that, an, I guess, an open policy that students are able to understand that as well as parents that might be looking at colleges for their kid as well, too? I mean, the fact that some of the professors don't even know about it, but then also some might know about it. But the main head principal, whoever you want to say, might be getting a a check in pocket to be able to allow these types of intelligence operations to happen. I, I don't agree with that. Well, let me, let me just, I'll try to answer that question, but let me backtrack a little bit to say that the CIA is smart enough or tricky enough to go back be, uh, before college. Uh, they were actually at my university running summer schools, summer camps, for middle and high school students that were presented uh, as not affiliated with the CIA in which students uh, practiced spycraft, uh, geocaching, uh, interpreting photographs, um, all of which was presented as uh, work that would help them get into college. And, at the same time, the CIA was identifying who these young people were so that they could be tracked for future employment. So it goes, it goes back 
prior to students' entry into into college. So how do we how do we find out? In our case, uh, you know, people started asking questions. And when we had enough information, we took it to the faculty senate and then to the president. And the five-year uh, contract with the CIA was, to our knowledge, was not renewed on this campus because of the education that had gone on around the subject. But how do you know? I, yeah, I think you, you just have to ask these kinds of questions and see what kind of answers you get on whatever whatever campus uh, you, you may be attending or you may be uh, entrusting your own uh, children to. How do we get from in their charter of the CIA, it says that they're never supposed to activate on domestic land, but somehow they've been doing that for what seems like a very long time now. Well, and and again, there uh, in the CIA charter it does say that their their work is to first of all their work is supposed to be intelligence gathering. Uh, it's only um, through the exigencies of, of time that uh, they were transferred into being active agents of uh, domestic uh, foreign policy uh, assassinations coups. Uh, that went far beyond intelligence gathering. And according to that charter, they were limited to uh, operating outside the United States borders. They were brought in uh, to the United States, uh, perhaps for the best of reasons. You know, uh, LBJ, uh, Lyndon Johnson, was overseeing the war in Vietnam, pursuing that war. Uh, his uh, his FBI director, J. Edgar Hoover, who had been in office forever, who had files on uh, secret files on all kinds of government uh, employees, including uh, people in the cabinet, uh, would publicly say that the uh, that the U.S. anti-war movement on campuses, in labor unions, what have you, was receiving money and direction from our foreign enemies. LBJ didn't believe this. He wanted to prove it wasn't true. And so he asked the CIA to disprove Hoover's, uh, Hoover's ideas. That's, that's how Vern Lyon got recruited into the CIA. He was part of this uh, program to, uh, to, to track the anti-war movement on college campuses and find out who were these people? Why, were they getting money from Moscow or from, or from Beijing? And, and in fact, they found that they were not. So in a sense, it was uh, for the best of purposes that the CIA was employed within the United States. But once, once they got that uh, toehold, um, uh, they have continued to uh, be active within the borders. And of course, we have, we have this gigantic uh, intelligence community, 16 different intelligence agencies operating. Um, we, there is a, there's a, there is, I, I don't want to say a secret government, but there's a whole layer of government which operates in secrecy, much more secrecy than is required. You could say deep state. I say deep state. I definitely believe in, I just look at a capitalistic system, but through all my conversations, um, diving into the Kennedy assassination topic, you start learning about organized crime, you learn about the assassination plots on Castro, you learn about so much and you start realizing J. Edgar Hoover's a really bad guy. Um, mostly because, I mean, he created a fake magazine on college campuses called the Radical Observer. And it was like 
just insane stuff. And I don't see, I, I mean, it's playing with your own domestic population's mind. And I don't agree if it's overseas as well either. I don't believe in that type of manipulations, but what they call secrecy or what they call national security issues that we can't share with you is just like ways of getting away with, I guess, an easy justification for their actions. And I don't think that's correct at all. Well, of course, they 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 uh, defend all of this uh, with the best possible motives. The problem is that uh, that uh, over hundreds of years, we've seen that you know power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And J. Edgar Hoover was perhaps more powerful than uh, the the American presidents he served because of the information he had. Um, I think I think it's it's it is terrifying. I think people need to be aware of what's going on. People need to be attuned to these dangers, and uh, and we need to push back. Uh, you know, I think it's it's interesting. People say, you know, how for example, how come uh, George W. Bush uh, spends so much time in Texas? How come he doesn't? You know, how come he doesn't? Well, he can't travel because he's under indictment as a war criminal. If he were to leave the United States, in, in most countries, he would be arrested. So we have to just kind of connect these dots of what's happening in the world to have a better sense of, and, and uh, I guess, a, cultivate a certain level of suspicion. I, I don't want to say fear, but, uh, but certainly suspicion and analysis of, uh, of what we face in the world. Well, have you become more aware that there's probably agencies influencing other things as well, too? Like, I'm more aware of movies being influenced by the DOD, uh, CIA, uh, and the FBI when it comes to a lot of things with J. Edgar Hoover's invasion into Hollywood, or you can look at the Department of Defense in the movie Lone Survivor, or the ending of Jurassic Park 3, where they say, thank God for the Marines. That's an added line but it's propaganda and it's in your films and it's like once you kind of see it like i'm not gonna be able to look at a college campus the same again um not like paranoia like everybody's a spy but just the aspect that there's institutions out there that have this unspoken deal they don't have to let anybody else know and and the idea of secrecy which they don't look at us like i'm not gonna it sounds like deep state talk but it's not but they don't look at us like people that have lives and families they look at as a pawn and that i just it's a horrible thing when your government thinks of you in that sense well and i would for me it's it's even worse uh because they think they're protecting us they think they're saving us they really have a sense that they're doing the right thing uh for example those who continue to defend the torture of prisoners after 9-11 uh, will still say it was to protect the United States. And we're all in favor of protecting the United States. But evidence continues to mount that most of these people didn't know anything, that under torture, people will say anything, uh, that torture was not the way to protect the United States. But I, I, I will give these people uh, credit for sincerity, perhaps not intelligence, but sincerity uh, that they believe they're doing the right thing. Do you think that after 9-11 that the world became more of a security state or big, big, an overwatchful eye, I would say? Like, I mean, we know about privacy issues online and we know a lot about, I mean, it just became a surveillance state. And the guys that they're looking for terrorists are this aspect of things. But a lot of stuff I see is, you know, I mean, 
I don't want to take it from straight out of J. Edgar Hoover's book, but the blackmailing aspect, there's some things you shouldn't know about people's lives because that is power and it will corrupt you. And I feel like that's with, I mean, everything right now is online and you ask somebody to turn their modem off. They barely know how to do that. So it's like asking someone to get an encrypted email or encrypted Wi-Fi and all that. It goes right over their head. They're more than happy to. I mean, now companies even do it, accept cookies and you go right through and let them look at all your data and tracking, which I think is dangerous. Well, my my education on this really came um, as when I led study abroad programs in in London. Uh, there are CTV cameras everywhere in London. Uh, there are more, more surveillance by uh, video in London than any city in the world. Uh, now it's all justified as a deterrent uh, for crime busting, etc. cetera. Uh, but you have the sense there that every move you make in uh, that city uh, every street, every building you enter, you are continuously under surveillance. And as these surveillance um, technologies become less and less expensive, uh, we're going to see it used on a greater and greater level. And certainly that seems to be what's happening in China. I haven't visited China in Oh, 30 years, but to see uh, how, uh, just from reading and pictures now, to see how um, they have become such a centralized but wealthy society. I mean, they 30 years and more ago, 40 years ago, that was a poor country. And now they've moved uh, hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. At the same time, power has become more and more concentrated among a small group of people um, who are, you know, when you can when you can move a million Uyghurs into uh, basically concentration camps to re-educate them, I think that's uh, that in a sense is uh, laying a roadmap for the future of what can be done as governments look more and more to control their societies. And I guess, I guess the, only, the only takeaway that uh, we can use with some optimism is that they wouldn't do this if they weren't afraid of our power. So we have to look at it from the other point of view. What, what can we do? What is our power? And our power is to be public, uh, to speak out, to write, to talk, uh, to organize our fellow citizens for what we think is right. And uh, I, I have to believe at the end of the day that that's more powerful than any, uh, than any uh, surveillance manipulation that the government can come up with. When it comes to the 60s and 70s and that kind of revolution of counterculture, do you think that was the one time that they noticed how powerful that people coming together or I guess the voice of people really are? Well, uh, yes and no. I think no in the sense that that, that, that that really wasn't an aberration. And I don't want to, having lived through it, I don't want to romanticize it or hold it up as a singular example. I think the American Revolution, I think the Haitian Revolution, uh, the Chinese Revolution, um, the movement to abolish slavery in the United States before the Civil War, these were all examples of people power. 
these were all examples of major changes. I think of the English Civil War and the overthrow of the monarchy uh, or the French Revolution. These, these show the kind of power that, that people indeed have. And I think when you when you look at the environmental movement today, it is driven by non-governmental organizations and organizations of citizens and residents uh, in localities all over the world who see an existential threat to humanity and the state, uh, you know, depredation of the environment. Um, so I would say that 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 rather than romanticizing the '60s, we really need to look to uh, the future in terms of what we can do and, and to and to look at how much, in fact, has been accomplished. When it came to Watergate and when they were looking into the covert action, um, they spent a lot of time discussing that. Do you think more people should just be, be I, I, that should be more in their purview, like even just to look at history and that aspect of things, at least be because right now, whenever you say something like MK Ultra drugging people, even you saying the CIA on campus, people would just roll their eyes and make conspiracy. And it's gotten to that point in our culture where everything gets broad brushed as this type of thing, even though if you really kind of talk about it and elaborate on it more, it starts to make a lot more sense. Well, you know, uh, I, I think you, you make a very important point. And, and often I think if I hadn't uh, been so attracted to teaching creative writing, I would have, uh, would have become an historian uh, because I think history is amazingly powerful. And I think uh, it's the job of each generation to pass on history to the next generation. Right now, uh, I live in um, in Northern California, about um, 150 miles north of San Francisco, in a little town uh, called Fort Bragg. And uh, Hoover Spy School, Hoover Spy School. <laughs> no, but nobody knows. You know, nobody knows how. Most people don't know how it got its name, why it's called Fort Bragg. It used to be, uh, of course, Pomo indigenous land, and then it was lumbering land and fishing land, and now it's a tourist town. But uh, it's named for a former Confederate Army general named Braxton Bragg, who enslaved a hundred plus African Americans on his plantation in Louisiana. Now, why would a town in Northern California be named for a Confederate general. Uh, I think that that's the power of history as we explain those connections uh, and how, why today with other people in town, we're trying to work to change the name. And we do get the response, well, that's history, that's past, who cares, it doesn't matter. Well, of course it matters a lot. Um, and we're seeing this across the country following uh, the murder of George Floyd, you know, kind of what's been called a racial uh, reckoning uh, where statues are coming down, name, place names are being changed. And we, we don't we can't just look at the South. Let me let me backstep a moment to say they the will this coming year be changing the name, the names of the nine U.S. Army military bases named for Confederate generals, including Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And all of those uh, army bases below the Mason-Dixon line were named for Confederate generals long after the Civil War. 
They were named for Confederate generals by people who understood the power of history and wanted those names attached to continue the myth that the Civil War was fought for states' rights, not slavery, that uh, the, the antebellum period of slavery was a time when African Americans were taken care of and, and were happy and, and to try and change and rewrite history. And those, so those names had power. And now that we are changing those names, Fort Bragg, North Carolina will become Fort Liberty. Uh, we're, we're rewriting, not rewriting, his, rewriting, we are writing history, re-rewriting history as history is always rewritten to kind of bring to the fourth for people to understand um, why we, why the past is really so, has such a heavy hand on us today. And, and California is a very interesting situation because it was, we think of it, oh, well, that, they were on the union side, right? It was an anti-slavery state. Well, no, when gold was discovered uh, in the mid uh, 19th century, Southerners came to California with their slaves to work the gold fields. And so we have in the state of California, something called the Alabama Hills. We have Jefferson Davis Peak for a mountain. Until recently, we had a town called Confederate Corners, and we have Fort Bragg. And so today, the struggle to change those names uh, and all the names uh, insulting to indigenous people uh, that were placed throughout the West. There are, there are literally a hundred place names for Squaw Mountain, Squaw Valley, Squaw City. These are being changed as people recognize that not only did we steal indigenous land, not only did we murder indigenous people, but we then placed the most uh, racially insulting names on the lands that we had stolen. So I think, I guess, my, you know, my sense of hope is that, yes, history is constantly being reexamined, rediscovered, uh, and rewritten. And I think that's a, that's a very positive thing. I just got one last question for you. When it comes to the students that came to you about maybe the CIA contacting them or things that they were doing, was that a struggle for the students? Like, how did they approach you? I have to feel like it has to be like, I don't know, hard to talk about or. And it really fits this theme of history because the students didn't know what the hell the CIA was. It didn't mean anything to them. What it meant was working for the government, and, you know, and that that can be attractive, either either, you know, a sense of patriotism or in the sense of steady employment. Either way, it can sound quite attractive. And uh, so the questions were, well, really, what was the CIA involved in in the 1950s? What did they did they really did they oh, there was I've heard that they were trying to assassinate Castro. They were trying to overthrow the government in Iran. Uh, they, they helped murder the uh, the president of of South Vietnam. What, what, what is this organization? And so it, it was a chance in those discussions, really, and we held public meetings, you know, on the, on the model of teach-ins held during the Vietnam War. Uh, it was really what the university is supposed to do in terms of education. Uh, this, the students weren't stupid, but they had not been taught uh, the history, really, uh, the political history of the United States. 
And so it was a very important, it was a teachable moment. Um, is there a place where people can find your books? I really appreciate the time you gave me to talk about um, CIA on campus. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I, I uh, cert, all both of these books, and I, I think these are two places to start, the CIA on campus and Eyes on Havana, should be available uh, everywhere online for order. They're both published by McFarlane uh, Publishing Company. They can certainly be ordered from McFarlane, but uh, you can find them on Amazon, eBay, uh, Better World Books, all of those places. And I would certainly encourage people to, uh, to read them. So you mentioned you're a creative writer. When it comes to some of the creative works you made, I mean, is it strictly stuff about the CIA or the government, or do you kind of have a free range? Uh, yes, I, I've got six books out. Uh, I think four are nonfiction. One is a play. Um, so I would be happy to to tell you about them. You know about the two, only two, only two are about the CIA. And I have to say, I just fell into this because uh, it was happening on my campus. And this led to my introduction to Vern Lyon and this book. Uh, one of my first books was After School Programs for At-Risk Teenagers. I, I was then a PhD student in theater and I saw how theater was very uh, useful uh, for teenagers to work out their issues by participating in theater. Uh, I've got another uh, another book. Uh, this is The Theater of Lee Blessing. He's a playwright I particularly admire, and uh, Lee cooperated with lots of interviews as I talked about, talked about his plays. So uh, yes, there are six books. Uh, people look under my name. They should all they should all come up and they can take their choice. Well, I'm going to make sure I link all your links in the description. It's been a pleasure chat. Thanks for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank.